Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today we're going to look forward to the 45th President of the United States, which is to say the next one, not to any of the particular candidates who may wind up holding that title, but to what whoever that individual is, is going to be up against. And you've been writing about this a bit lately. And one of the things that you've suggested is that the next president may have to go on an apology tour of his or her own, not so much as a matter of following President Obama's example, but as a matter of addressing his legacy. Explain that. Well, I had two purposes in that series of columns. One was that Obama has sort of distorted the historical record as it existed on January 20th of 2009 when he came into office. You've got to remember that the financial collapse of September 14th was over four months earlier. The TARP bailout, the rescue of the banks, had it all been institutionalized. And in fact, that recession would end its natural course just six months after Obama came into office. Second, Iraq had a, a fewer casualties per week than the accident rate in the U.S. military. It was pretty much stable, and by 2010, it was quiet, quieter than almost anywhere, much quieter than Chicago, by the way. About a quarter of the deaths, uh, not even that much, about 15% of the deaths in Chicago were, were occurring in Iraq. So the idea that he had inherited the mess in Iraq, of Afghanistan, more people have died under Obama's tenure than under Bush in Afghanistan. Reset with Russia, uh, reset a reset that Bush had done. Bush had punished them for going into Osatia. And I don't think anybody in the Obama administration says our signature achievement was reset with Putin or bombing Libya or ignoring the red lines in Syria that we established, etc. So my point was that uh, he has blamed all of these things in the Middle East, the physical situation, in which he's, he's borrowed more money, not just than. George Bush, but all other presidents together as, we re- as we're getting close at the end of his tenure to $20 trillion. So he blames George Bush, but if you look at it empirically, he's done things that the next president will have much more grounds to blame him. And then the second point, of course, was that because he's institutionalized this idea that there's no shelf life to blaming your predecessor, most presidents do it for six months. I think George W. Bush did it for about two months about, you know, Clinton let down our guard, etc. Clinton had a recession, etc. And that was it. But with Obama, it's perpetual. Wine, wine, blame, blame, George W. Bush. On, according to that logic, the next president will have to go over to the Saudis and say, I'm sorry that Obama alienated the Gulf states. And he'll have to go to the French and British and say, I'm sorry that he blamed you uh, for the Libyan fiasco. And he said, you're basically freeloading on American uh, security expenditures. He'll have to go, I, I guess he'll have to go over to the Israelis and said, I'm sorry that Obama tilted really toward Iran and, and screwed up the stability of the entire region. And he, we could do this forever. And you can see where I'm going with it because that's not what people want as a tradition of an American president to distort the, the record that, that he inherited and then to blame, blame, blame rather than to just, you know, look at and critique his own, his, his own accomplishment. Another piece that you wrote on this topic recently was entitled, The Next President is Going to Be Hated. On the domestic front, 
you're arguing whoever sits in the Oval Office next is basically going to be tasked with telling the country that the party's over. Why does that have to be the message? Well, I think everybody realizes two things. You can't you can't really get above two twenty trillion dollars as rapidly as as we're on course to, and that the Genrich Clinton nineteen nineties formula of achieving a budget surplus was exploded by Obama. It had three components, four components actually. One was cutting defense, the other was cutting spending, the other was raising taxes and then uh, promoting economic growth to get up to 3 to 5%. Under Obama, economic growth is about zero. He raised taxes on the top levels to 39%. He slashed defense down to about 3% GDP, but we still have half a trillion dollar deficits. And that's because he was either unwilling or unable to address entitlement and domestic social spending. So that's a legacy that we're going to, uh, the next president is going to have to address that. He's going to have to say either raise taxes or cut, but we're going to, we can't keep borrowing at the, at the level. I think the next president's going to say, you know what, you can't have a black lives matter movement in which you can't say all lives matter. That's just nihilistic. And we've gone down the Obama tribalism route with punish your enemies, bring a gun to a knife fight. Trevon looks like the child I never had, da, da, da. And that's not sustainable because all the polls show that there's more racial and ethnic tension in a society where it's not 90-10 anymore. It's 70-30 uh, white and then all different mixed uh ancestries, etc. So it, that, that Rwanda-Iraq uh, paradigm, Lebanon paradigm, won't work in this country. So the next president's going to have to say no more. And that's going to be very touchy to do that. The next president's also going to have to say to the military, you lost deterrence, I'm sorry, but if we don't do something, they're going to continually, they being the Iranians or the Russians or the Chinese, they're going to continually shoot missiles at our carriers. They're going to buzz our aircraft. They're going to hijack our boats because they f- feel that we either are unable or unwilling to restore deterrence. So there's going to be an incident with the next president. He's going to have to choose. He's going to have to say either I accept that, and if he does, we've lost our global leadership, or the next time a Russian plane goes almost into the, the deck of a ship, or an Iranian decides to humiliate American sailors, he's going to have to shoot back. And then everybody's going to do what they did with Reagan in 1983, you know, and they said Reagan's going to cause a nuclear war, he's destroyed detente, he thinks he can win the Cold War. And that was a response to the appeasement of Jimmy Carter. So whoever the next president is, if he's going to try to arrest this, it's going to be very unpopular and dangerous. On that topic of deterrence, given the behavior that we've seen from Vladimir Putin over the last few years, it seems certain that one issue the next president's going to have to face is Russia and to what degree NATO is an effective mechanism in keeping Moscow at bay. And NATO's actually become a campaign issue in this cycle with Donald Trump saying that it's outdated and America basically gets financially exploited by the other members. Is NATO – for the next president sustainable or is to Trump's point, is it worth rethinking? Well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You have to rethink it and sustain it. And by that, I mean, it should have never expanded to 27 nations because as I wrote in the column, I don't think somebody in Amsterdam wants to die to stop Putin from going into Estonia. I wish he would, but he doesn't, he's not going to do that. Uh, 
And I don't think anybody today uh, is going to say to Erdogan in Turkey, we're with you in your fight against uh, the Kurds or we're with you in your, in your rivalry and aggression toward Israel. Remember, Turkey has invoked Article 4, um, four out of the five times it's ever been invoked. It was never done, in the, and that's the mutual consultation. So we have members that don't reflect European common values or that they're in positions that the Europeans are not really, in fact, willing to sacrifice to protect, sort of like Poland in 1939. The guarantees that France and, and Britain gave it, gave it were, were worthless. And I don't think it works anymore for a NATO to do a preemptory extra-European attack. We got away with it in the Balkans, maybe in Afghanistan, but the Libyan thing was a fiasco. So I think if we went back and said, you know what, everybody's got to pay 2% GDP on defense or you're out. And we're not going to expand the alliance anymore. And we're not going to operate outside of the European continental landmass. I think we could get back to a viable, a viable alliance. But Trump and Obama said the same thing as Trump. They were on the same page that they they don't really believe in NATO as it as it existed. On the topic of adjusting to a new era, I'm going to take you more directly here, I guess, to politics, Victor. Yeah. Republicans have for for quite a long time, when describing their ideal president, invoked. Ronald Reagan, either by name or by describing someone who sounds an awful lot like Ronald Reagan. The 2016 election is going to be as far removed from Reagan's first election in 1980 as Reagan's first election was from Franklin Roosevelt's fourth one in 1944. With that in mind, how well does Reagan hold up at the remove of several decades as a model for a contemporary Republican presidential candidate? Well, you know, he, he's like FDR was in 1980, that he was a myth. I mean, if you said to somebody about FDR in 1980, he came back, he went to the convention and gave a fireside chat that evening and said, vote for me because you don't want to bring people into power that are Nazis. You wouldn't want to go over and beat the Nazis in Europe, then come back home and have them control Washington. And he was talking about Thomas Dewey. So he was a mean SOB. He was a great president in some ways, but we made a myth. And the same thing about Reagan. I mean, as a Californian, I can tell you that he introduced withholding tax for the first time. He signed one of the most liberal abortion bills. His simpson Mazzoli Act is why we have this illegal immigration problem. He came up with the idea of amnesty. He canceled some of the most critical reservoirs in California, about 6 million acre feet. And what I'm getting at is that I'm saying that not because I don't admire him. I think he was a great president, but he's been such an iconic figure by people on the right that they're not willing or they weren't alive or they don't have the information to give an assessment of him. And I think, so when I hear that Cruz is or is not Reagan or Trump is or not Reagan, uh, it doesn't mean much to me unless they can give me exact uh, citations of what they mean by Ronald Reagan. Better than the alternative? Absolutely. Won the Cold War? Probably. Cut taxes when nobody thought you could at that time? Yes. But uh, a social conservative as we and the conservative movement? No, not at all. I don't, I don't think he was at all. So the, the final question I'll put to you, this is I guess sort of the civic quotient. It's striking to me anyway that the last two presidents, Barack Obama and George W. Bush before him, 
both ran on a pledge to unify the country. And in both cases, their presidency is going to be pretty polarizing. Is being a unifying figure an impractical goal for the next president? For that matter, is it a worthwhile one? Well, that's a good question because inherent in the idea of unifying is compromising your principles. Right. And I, I think it depends on what period you're in. So the way I look at it, say from a conservative point of view, where is the country right now as far as the size of the federal government, the percentage of taxes, um, the growth of entitlements? Have we the culture at large? Where are the universities, the foundation, Hollywood? Are they in where they were in the 50s? And so what I guess I'm saying is I think the country culturally and economically and physically has moved far to the left so that you do need some type of confrontation with the left to say, you know what, we got to bring it back to the center. Now they say, well, it's moved too far for the right. I understand it's all relative, but I think any empirical assessment will say Hollywood is turning out movies very different than it's a wonderful life. And what's on TV today is very different than what was in the fifties. When you look at professional sports or popular culture or the drug cult, whatever you look at, the country from the 60s on is moved in a particular direction. So I, I think it's good. I think the better word is being civil to people. I live in a family where I think I'm the only conservative. I have two brothers, including a twin brother, and both of them are Bernie Sanders fanatics. And I don't know how that happened, but they don't know how I happened. And <laughs> I try to reach out. I try to maintain good relations with them. I try not to talk to politics. Politics isn't the, the only issue that I view them through, prism that I view them through. But I, I, So I think that's important, to be polite to people, not to write things that are not true, not to write things that are vulgar and crude, not to get in shouting matches with people. Uh, if I go to a university or I go to a place and I hear a view that I don't like, I, I try to be respectful. If I'm in a, that said, I don't think you should compromise your principles because I think the country is on a trajectory that's just – it leads to Armageddon. I really do. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.